Special insert today. My name is DM Vince. I'm sitting alongside DM Nick today. Hello, everybody. And today we have a special guest to uh, to follow up on the modules we just got done completing with the uh, A series module, the Slaver series. We have one of the authors of the Slaver and the playtester as well, Lauren Schick, on the phone. Mr. Schick, how are you today? I'm fine. How good, are you? Good. Good to hear from you. We have a lot of questions to ask you, and I know you've seen the questions, but we're eager to ask, ask these questions and hear what you have to say about them. So well, let's get going then. All right, let's get started off. So well, let's start with some general questions. How did you get started in gaming, sir? Uh, well, um, in 1964, my father uh, brought home a copy of the uh, original Square uh, game uh, board uh, of uh, Gettysburg from Avalon Hill. Oh, wow. And uh, my brothers and I started playing war games, and uh, we played all sorts of games. And eventually... Uh, uh, when uh, role-playing games came along, got into those as well. Interesting. And from from that point on, we're going to move a little bit further in life. How did you uh, wind up meeting Gary Gygax? And, uh, yeah, basically, how did you wind up meeting Gary Gygax to get into TSR? Uh, well, um, I had uh, uh, really gotten into playing Dungeons & Dragons. Role-playing games uh, combined my interests of, uh, of gaming and storytelling. And uh, uh, I was always good with numbers, so I had uh, done a lot of uh, amateur design um, of uh, D&D type stuff. And uh, when I saw that they were, the TSR was uh, looking to hire an outside designer to uh, uh, begin expanding to deal with the uh, increasing demand for D&D products in the late 70s, um, I decided I was going to get that job. So uh, <laughs> I went... I went to a uh, uh, one of the little conventions that TSR put on at that time, little gaming weekends up in Wisconsin, mm. uh, and uh, met Gary, and uh, he uh, uh, assigned me to uh, do a sample for them um, to uh, uh, see if I had the chops to <laughs> be a professional D&D designer. So the sample I did was White Plume Mountain. Mm. I cobbled uh, together yes. a bunch of, uh, bunch of ideas from my... Uh, uh, campaign uh, that I'd been running with uh, uh, with Tom Mulvey back in Akron, Ohio, and uh, uh, wrote that up as uh, to show that I could uh, design uh, dungeons. And uh, Gary liked it enough, said to my surprise, they were going to publish it without changing a word, and uh, hired me as a designer. And I moved to Wisconsin. Wow, that's pretty darn impressive. Now, this is probably what, like uh, 78, 79, you would say, right around there? This is uh, late 78. I started at TSR in January of 79. Okay, so you and... Now, was Tom uh, Moldvay, was he already there, or were you kind of coming in the TSR at the same time? Because you were both from the same area. And Did you both go to Kansas State and just kind of met through gaming there? How did, how did your relationship with, with Tom get in there and get into TSR? 
Uh, we met at Kent State. Uh, we were both uh, science fiction and comics and games fans. Uh, we uh, were both involved with the uh, science fiction uh, society at Kent State University. Um, mm -hmm. Put on a convention there, and we. Uh, uh, he actually came back from a science fiction convention uh, sometime seventy six, seventy seven, uh, having played D and D for the first time, um, mm -hmm. and uh, we got hold of a partially Xeroxed copy of the white box rules <laughs> and uh, went from there. We actually ran a uh, we ran a, uh, a double GM campaign. We, we had a, we came up with a world uh, that eventually became the known world and later Mistara. Um, and uh, uh, so we would uh, we ran a campaign in which players could uh, uh, play in either of our, our dungeons and our adventures and uh, ran for each other. Um, then after I went to TSR, uh, about uh, mm, I, I, I pretty soon became the uh, director of design, um, and uh, we were staffing up, and so I brought Tom in uh, along with uh, uh, hired a bunch of other folks like uh, Zeb Cook and um, uh, artists like Errol Otis and folks uh, uh, like Paul Hitching. Um and uh, that's how we staffed up TSR. Oh, it sounds like around that time, 78, 79, was really when TSR was ramping up with a lot of the, I guess we would call the legendary staff, if you will. Mm. Definitely. Well, uh, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, no, I was just going to say, yeah, they, they had had some success with the, uh, the uh, uh, Holmes uh, basic set and uh, decided that uh, we were going to expand on that, and so... Yeah, for the staff that uh, that did the original basic and expert sets, um, and uh, uh, went from there into uh, uh, relatively large sales for the time. Mm. All right, let's uh, skip ahead just a tiny bit. Uh, so, the time Advanced Dungeons and Dragons comes out, uh, Gary acknowledged you as help in the Dungeon Master's Guide. Uh, what can you tell us about that? Uh, well. My first assignment when I when I arrived in Wisconsin, uh, Gary handed me this this box full of manuscript uh, <laughs> oh, and said, "This is the Dungeon Master's Guide, um, and it's not done, and it needs to be organized. So uh, you edit it, uh, organize this, and uh, figure out what goes where. And uh, there's a few parts that I didn't feel like writing that you need to finish. Uh, so finish those up." Oh, and he's probably uh, and, like, and, and no pressure, right? <laughs> uh, right, and, and and this is our big release for the year, so. Uh, yeah, no pressure, don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, really. Mm -hmm. So uh, so that's what I did. I, I organized the Dungeon Master's Guide. Uh, there were some things like uh, uh, underwater rules and uh, uh, unarmed combat and aerial rules uh, and things, and uh, detection of invisibility, that kind of stuff. Uh, that I wrote because because uh, uh, Gary was just done. He, he but I wrote it to his uh, uh, to his uh, direction, um, and uh, I was one who insisted that we had to have an index. It was a reference book by God. Reference books have indexes. Uh, so I did thank the you for myself. that. <laughs> okay. So that was that was that was the Dungeon Master's Guide. <laughs> well, that answers that question definitely. Uh, so let's uh, skip ahead to the Slaver series modules that you were involved with, and uh, you play tested in all of them and wrote the fourth one. 
And uh, how did you get? Uh, how did? How was it playtesting? First of all, with, uh, with all the legendary people in there, and as well as, did some things not get put in there that should have been? And were there anything cut out that we would like to know about? Maybe you can tell us an inside story about the Slaver Module series. Um, not about the playtesting because I just don't remember. Uh, right. We uh, we certainly tested it. It was originally they were originally written as tournament modules, so the important thing was to test them as if they were being played in a tournament. Um, so, you know, that meant, uh, all right, you're going to be doing this subset of the module. Uh, you've got exactly four hours. Uh, you've got exactly this many players. Um, and here's the situation. Now go. Let's see if we can break. Okay. Uh, so that's, you know, and then you, uh, once you had the tournament stuff done, um, uh, then uh, turning it into a published module meant uh, coming up with the context and the background for it. Uh, the linking material so that you could uh, link them together into a uh, sort of mini campaign, which you don't care about in a tournament, but which players care about uh, for home use. Hmm. Um, and uh, uh, coming up with the uh, sort of with new monsters and things, and uh, which which were standard in in modules at that time. People people loved having new monsters. Oh, of course, definitely. Who doesn't like a new monster to use? Oh, no kidding. <laughs> Well, that's pretty. In- I-, I-, I thought it was interesting. Also, along with this module is, and, and that whole Slaver series being used in a tournament. What was that that turn? What the- that tournament like at that? Uh, I believe it was at Gen Con. Uh, how was that running that? And I believe you were one of the uh, the head folks in running that uh, that tournament for for AD and D there. What was that whole experience like for you and trying to get that all organized? Yeah, that was before the RPGA, so we didn't have uh, staff that were dedicated to that sort of thing uh, until, like, I think the following year. So um, you were kind so of just breaking it, new ground there. Well, not really. Uh, the the guys who had started um, TSR, uh, Gary and uh, the Blooms and, and, and their friends, uh, they were serious war gamers, and they had been running conventions uh, for a dozen years. And they had been putting on tournaments and playing in tournaments for as long as they'd been going on. They were they were really into uh, the tournament scene. So they had very clear ideas about how they wanted tournaments to run and what tournament play was supposed to be like. Um, and Gary was an avid uh, uh, participant in the, in the tournaments in the early years um, in uh, uh, making sure they ran uh, the way he wanted because uh, he, he thought that was just tremendous fun. Um, so when we had to run the uh, uh, the Gen Con tournaments for that year, it really meant uh, by that time Gary and 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 his pals were too busy running the company. Uh, so it meant I and my staff had to uh, put it together and run it. Um, frankly, it it took away so much time from production of uh, of new content to publish that that's one of the reasons why they established the RPGA so they have dedicated people to do it uh, instead I of having see. to take away their designers. So that's um, how the RPG came about. They it's let's one of, have one our of the own reasons, staff right. for that. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. Um, that, so uh, yeah, so we had uh, we had a very clear template of how to run tournaments from all the previous years. So uh, okay, you know, we see. didn't have to make things up in that regard. We just had to follow uh, the standards. Okay, I see. So, but after that, they're like, "Hey, we need an actual organization to do this stuff." drawing from our resources from time to time because it's taking away from projects. That makes sense. Okay. Huh. Okay. So, 
Like next question is: There was a reference to the uh, God of Earth Dragon in there. Uh, there was limited information on that. Can you tell us anything about this? Was it meant to go anywhere? Because the only thing we found uh, about it was uh, some later editions mentioned it, but we're not concerned with that. We're concerned with more of the AD and D time. Yeah, no, that was that was kind of a throwaway. That was just a uh, you, you would put hooks into modules um, for uh, the uh, the game master to build upon um, because we were not yet in the era where there was so much reference material um, that uh, that GMs uh, could find out could find anything they wanted about any anything they wanted to know. So it was it was assumed that uh, a module was was part of a GM's greater campaign, and GM was making a lot of stuff up. Uh, so you'd, you'd throw hooks in for the game master to hang stuff on uh, and make things up if they wanted to or ignore if they didn't care about it, and that was one of those. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Okay, cool. Very nice. Nick, you want to grab the next question? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I, I I guess we're going to kind of go back a, a little bit, or I guess it's around the same time, is uh, about the module White Plume Mountain. And uh, it's a big favorite from the AD&D crowd from really since its inception. And it was so popular enough that when TSR got to do their 25th anniversary silver edition box set, they put a copy of that in there. I was just kind of curious, what's that the backstory on White Plume Mountain? How that got all uh, started and the inspiration for that whole adventure, if you could maybe elaborate on that. Well, as I mentioned earlier, it wasn't really written to be published. It was written to get me a job. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> it, uh, uh, it, uh, I had been running a D&D campaign uh, pretty regularly for several years. And uh, I had uh, uh, created a bunch of dungeons uh, that I was pretty pleased with. Um, and uh, I just went through those and kind of took out what I felt were the cleverest ideas that indicated that I was uh, uh, could come up with fun stuff for players um, came up with a, uh, uh, a pretty thin conceit to string them all together, uh, really, um, and uh, uh, just uh, drew this dungeon and wrote it up in the most uh, amusing fashion I could manage at the time <laughs> um, to, uh, to demonstrate that, uh, that they needed to hire me. Um, and uh, I guess it, it hung together well enough because they decided to publish it. And that's really just the backstory behind it. And that, and I, I have to, at least for me, uh, I know for, I would say for most people, that has really withstood the test of time. You know, it's come to known as like kind of a funhouse dungeon. It's got a little bit of everything in it, but it, it's, it's a really amazing piece of work. And it's really enjoyable to run. Well, thank you. I mean, it was uh, that was during a time when D and D was still very close to its roots in gaming, uh, and so stuff that was sort of overtly gamey was uh, was perfectly acceptable um, mm -hmm. because players were you were you were trying to challenge the players and uh, uh, give them a good time. Uh, and there was uh, it was later that we got into. Uh, more of the storytelling and ambiance and, and context, uh, you know, which right. all of which I approve of. Um, but uh, but it it can have the effect of uh, de-emphasizing uh, uh, the moment-to-moment -moment challenge for the players, which is really what the game is all about. If you're running a good game, 
right. you are pacing it so that the players are constantly doing something fun rather than listening to your story. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, White Plume Mountain was just uh, a big collection of fun stuff to do, uh, and so players naturally enjoyed it. And it was good enough they did a sequel later on. <laughs> <laughs> So which did. was which was actually rather enjoyable as well. But one thing about White Plume, I have to ask: Black Razor, mm-hmm. is that an actual ripoff of Stormbringer? I have to ask. <laughs> it is an it is an actual ripoff of Stormbringer. Uh, okay, I, I I put it in there uh, to show that I could. One of the things I could do was to uh, adapt stuff from other media uh, into Dungeons and Dragons. So here was something that was really cool from another medium. Here's how you do it in game terms. Uh, so yeah, if I if I you know was writing it to be published, I wouldn't have put in something that was uh, let's call it an homage, such a clear homage uh, oh, to, sure. uh, to something. Sure, <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, that's why that was in there. Yeah, and and I just remember even I running it. That's that's the uh, magic item we get there. Like, do we really want to give it back to the guy, or do we want to keep it? <laughs> so. Yeah, it's one of those things. It's a great homage to to the story. Definitely. <clears throat> oh, okay, so let's uh, jump over to uh, the Star Frontiers game itself. Now, um, how were you involved with Star Frontiers, and, and did Gary bring this project to you, and have you write some of it, and uh, what were your thoughts on it, pretty much? Um, yeah, Gary was not involved with Star Frontiers. Okay. Uh, TSR... Uh, uh, wanted to expand its line uh, beyond fantasy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Traveler was successful. Um, it was uh, uh, it was uh, out there as a pretty vibrant competitor in the science fiction realm. TSR looked at that and wanted a piece of that. So they said, let's do a science fiction RPG. Um, and uh, that was, uh, at that time, I had been the director of design for about a year, uh, and uh, it was frustrating for me because I wasn't getting enough to do enough design. Um, so I stepped back from being director and went back to being a game designer and uh, uh, collaborated then with Zeb Cook on coming up with uh, Star Frontiers. Um, uh, I came up with uh, sort of the basics of the rules, um, and then uh, uh, Zeb worked on a lot of the basics of the, uh, the background. Uh, we split up the alien races um, and uh, we came up with the uh, with a complete game. Um, then, uh, uh, right around then, I uh, before it was published, uh, I left TSR and uh, went off to go freelance. Um, and uh, then they they rewrote it a lot. Uh, they they uh, simplified it from being a AD and D level thing to try to make it more of a introductory uh, game. Um, uh, which was a different market than it was originally designed for. Mm-hmm. Um, and they added uh, uh, little simplified miniature rules and stuff, uh, made a different game out of it, which is why it was published as by TSR staff rather than <clears throat> by Lawrence Schick and David Cook. Okay. Okay, cool. Um, Nick, do you have another question for him? Well, I was just well, thinking about also on Star Frontiers, you know, how the... Uh, Going to, I guess, basically a different game mechanic. What was the idea behind that, and the, and the play testing and all that on Star Frontiers? Yeah, uh, I wasn't really involved in the changes in the play play mechanics because I was oh, gone okay. by then. 
Uh, but the the early the early play mechanics that I I'd come up with were actually very similar to what later uh, uh, came out as the D twenty system. Um, I'm kidding. It was, uh, it was it was a, a very simple, or rather, it was all based around rolling D twenties and uh, checking against uh, checking stats against uh, you know that, those rolls and. Uh, uh, and, and then modifying up or down, um, you know, the, I mean, it, it's not, it was, uh, yeah, I mean, it was, uh, uh, when the D20 system came out, I said, oh, look, it's my old system. <laughs> a little bit of a, hmm, oh, yeah. <laughs> that's interesting. But, uh, <laughs> but it, I mean, it's, it, it's an obvious system in hindsight, right? If you've got a, if you've got a D20 and you've got staff sure. around it, that basis, um, it, it makes sense to, uh, 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 to do it that way, um, right? Uh, I always thought that uh, Star Frontiers, in, in retrospect, now kind of looking back on it, is as far as like the sci-fi aspect of it, the tech-wise, it almost reminds me of, uh, if you know the show uh, Firefly, Ooh. in that respect, kind of, kind of, it's science fiction, but somewhat low tech in a way. And I and I'm now kind of looking at it like, wow, Star Frontiers is kind of like that in a way. Mm. Well, you, you you know the problem with uh, technology in a science fiction game uh, is that you have to you have to throttle it back, um, you because otherwise you it, it, it becomes a game about the gear, mm-hmm. uh, and and the gear can do anything, right? Um, right? So you have to be careful, you know. Um, uh, about which elements of science fiction you're going to include. Do you have uh, the teleportation? Uh, do you have time travel? Uh, uh, what are you going to do? Because because introduction of a, a piece of tech in a story, you know, like teleportation in Star Trek, uh, is not a problem. It doesn't solve everything. Because why? Because the writers don't let it. Uh, right. <laughs> but if you put it in the hands, if you put it in the hands of players. Uh, they're just going to go mad with it, and uh, and it will be impossible to come up with challenges uh, that can't be solved with teleportation. So, uh, you know, you have to uh, you have to think clearly. You have to pick and choose about what aspects of uh, uh, higher technology you're going to include in a science fiction background for a, uh, an RPG. Hmm, that's that's great. Cool. Very interesting. <clears throat> Moving ahead uh, a bunch of years, I, I noticed on, on your uh, profile that you had worked for Coleco Industries for from eighty two mm-hmm. to eighty four, and I definitely grew up playing with that system nonstop. Uh, yes, ColecoVision. <laughs> Which uh, were there any titles that you were involved with for game wise that maybe we would recognize, or did you students just stay in the background and work, or what you do? Oh no, I was uh, I was a uh, one of the uh, designers and team leaders uh, on. Uh, uh, ColecoVision products, and we also did uh, cartridges for the Atari Twenty Six Hundred and the Intellivision. Oh. Um, I did uh, both uh, adaptations of uh, uh, coin-operated games that were popular at the time. I think I did five versions of Zaxxon, for example. Oh wow! Nice. Uh, oh, okay, the- then you contribute to my delinquency as a youth because that was one of my favorite games. <laughs> yeah, I, I've got a lot to answer for. Uh, I did some original <laughs> games. Uh, I did some original games. I did a Tarzan game. Uh, I did a, a Dukes of Hazard game for the oh. ColecoVision driving controller. 
that without was ever having seen an episode of the show. Uh, so that I was well, proud of that. That was amazing because that was like my favorite game back as a kid playing the Dunk Dukes of Hazard game. So thank you. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you're welcome. No, that, my pleasure. I have to say though, when when talking about ColecoVision, I remember when that hit the market. It was such it, compared to like the other. Uh, game console systems at the time, you know, talking early mid '80s, as far as graphics wise, it was like a quantum leap because I remember when you saw ColecoVision Donkey Kong. Yeah, it looked like the arcade game. Oh yeah, it it was very well rendered. The Zaxxon game was practically exactly like it. So that uh, ColecoVision was a huge leap over like some of the other game systems at that time. It's pretty impressive. Well, I wasn't uh, responsible for any of the technical stuff, just the, uh, just the gameplay. <laughs> well, you did a wonderful job. Any... Yeah, I did a great job. Loved Zaxxon. So. <laughs> now, I noticed that uh, you're currently working on uh, the Elder Scrolls Online, which many people are familiar with the Elder Scrolls game, but I didn't know there was an online game coming out. Yes, there is. Um, but I'm not authorized to answer questions about it. I uh, think, however, yeah. your, your listeners can go to... Uh, ElderScrollsOnline.com mm-hmm. and find out a whole lot of stuff about it. I'm the one of the lead writers, and I'm the lore master on the game. Right. Uh, oh. So I'm I'm uh, responsible for making sure that we uh, uh, are in line with and expand properly upon the Elder Scrolls uh, world. Right. Uh, so a lot of the stuff on the website is stuff I wrote. Oh wow! Amazing. That's, it's a, it's that's a great game. Do they have any uh, a public release date for it yet, or is that still hush hush? Uh, no, none has been announced, and that's okay. about all I can say. That, that's all. It's, we know. That's it's just in the works, and it's coming to uh, the internet near you. <laughs> right. Got it. Okay. So as we're wrapping this up with you, Lawrence, I know you're uh, you're. Uh, caught on time here, but I have one last uh, goofy question for you, and I usually ask this to all the guests just to get a good laugh. Uh, if you can be a household appliance, which one would you be, and why would you be that one? Um, does uh, does home computer count? Sure. Because <laughs> uh, that's, you know, uh, my home computer is my my uh, my extra RAM, my, my, my memory storage. Uh, <laughs> We could always now use that mem- more memory, couldn't we? Definitely. <laughs> oh, yes, especially at my age. <laughs> and, uh, Lawrence, if, if anyone wants to uh, contact you or follow you, where how can they do that, and where can they go? Uh, um, hmm. Are you on Twitter? Uh, or? No, I'm not. Uh, uh, but uh, you can uh, pretty much... Uh, I guess uh, going to the ElderScrollsOnline.com site is where you're going to see what I'm up to. Okay. Uh, but I'm not, uh, I don't really have uh, 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 fan notes or things of that sort. Okay, so you don't have a personal I, website or anything that people can go to to look at things? Not at present. Okay. I, I do have one quick question before we go. Do you still do any uh, tabletop role-playing from time to time or any other type of like board gaming, what have you? Absolutely. Uh, oh, I am running. Uh, I am actively running a D and D campaign set in the Caribbean Sea of an alternative 17th century with pirates and musketeers and oh. uh, all sorts of fun stuff like that. Cool. That sounds cool. <laughs> and I play with friends and go to conventions. And, pirate you know. orcs. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if they have pig right. faces or not. We got we got orcish pirates. 
Oh, I, I'm already. I'm already. Scottish dwarves. Oh, nice. <laughs> All right. Well, so they only use blunt weapons, I suppose. Yes, they do. Okay. Well, Mr. Schick, thank you for joining us today, and uh, I hope you have a, a great weekend, sir. And and, uh, and maybe uh, we'll talk to you from time to time and see what's going on with Elder Scrolls Online. Uh, my pleasure, and good luck with the podcast. Thank you, sir. Have a good day. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Roll for initiative.